Chapter Fifteen of Tales of a Traveler by Washington Irving. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Greg Giordano. Buckthorn, Part Three. At length, we were exhibiting one day at West End Fair, which was at that time a very fashionable resort and often beleaguered by gay equipages from town among the spectators that filled the front row of our little canvas theatre one afternoon when i had to figure in a pantomime was a party of young ladies from a boarding school with their governess guess my confusion when in the midst of my antics i beheld among the number my quondam flame her whom i had berhymed at school her for whose charms i had smarted so severely though cruel saccharissa what was worse i fancied she recollected me and was repeating the story of my humiliating flagellation for i saw her whispering her companions and her governess i lost all consciousness of the part i was acting and of the place where i was i felt shrunk to nothing and could have crept into a rat-hole unluckily none was open to receive me before i could recover from my confusion i was tumbled over by pantaloon and the clown and i felt the sword of harlequin making vigorous assaults in a manner most degrading to my dignity heaven and earth was i again to suffer martyrdom in this ignominious manner in the knowledge and even before the very eyes of this most beautiful but most disdainful of fair ones all my long-smothered wrath broke out at once the dormant feelings of the gentleman arose within me stung to the quick by intolerable mortification i sprang on my feet in an instant leaped upon harlequin like a young tiger tore off his mask buffeted him in the face and soon shed more blood on the stage than had been spilt upon it during a whole tragic campaign of battles and murders as soon as harlequin recovered from his surprise he returned my assault with interest i was nothing in his hands i was game to be sure for i was a gentleman but he had the clownish advantages of bone and muscle i felt as if i could have fought even unto the death and i was likely to do so for he was according to the vulgar phrase putting my head into chancery when the gentle columbine flew to my assistance god bless the women they are always on the side of the weak and the oppressed the battle now became general the dramatis personae ranged on either side the manager interfered in vain in vain were his spangled black bonnet and towering white feathers seen whisking about and nodding and bobbing in the thickest of the fight warriors ladies priests satyrs kings queens gods and goddesses all joined pell-mell in the fray never since the conflict under the walls of troy had there been such a chance medley warfare of combatants human and divine the audience applauded the ladies shrieked and fled from the theatre and a scene of discord ensued that baffles all description nothing but the interference of the peace officers restored some degree of order the havoc however that had been made among dresses and decorations put an end to all further acting for the day the battle over the next thing was to inquire why it was begun a common question among politicians 
after a bloody and unprofitable war and one not always easy to be answered it was soon traced to me in my unaccountable transport of passion which they could only attribute to my having run amuck the manager was judge and jury and plaintiff in the bargain and in such cases justice is always speedily administered he came out of the fight as sublime a wreck as the santissima trinidada his gallant plumes when once towered aloft were drooping about his ears his robe of state hung in ribbons from his back and but all concealed the ravages he had suffered in the rear he had received kicks and cuffs from all sides during the tumult for every one took the opportunity of slyly gratifying some lurking grudge on his fat carcass he was a discreet man and did not choose to declare war with all his company so he swore all those kicks and cuffs had been given by me and i let him enjoy the opinion some wounds he bore however which were the incontestable traces of a woman's warfare his sleek rosy cheek was scored by trickling furrows which were ascribed to the nails of my intrepid and devoted columbine the ire of the monarch was not to be appeased he had suffered in his person and he had suffered in his purse his dignity too had been insulted and that went for something for dignity is always more irascible than the more petty the potentate he wreaked his wrath upon the beginners of the affray and columbine and myself were discharged at once from the company figure me then to yourself a stripling of little more than sixteen a gentleman by birth a vagabond by trade turned adrift upon the world making the best of my way through the crowd of west end fair my mountebank dress fluttering in rags about me the weeping columbine hanging upon my arm in splendid but tattered finery the tears coursing one by one down her face carrying off the red paint in torrents and literally preying upon her damask cheek the crowd made way for us as we passed and hooted in our rear i felt the ridicule of my situation but had too much gallantry to desert this fair one who had sacrificed everything for me having wandered through the fair we emerged like another adam and eve into unknown regions and had the world before us where to choose never was a more disconsolate pair seen in the soft valley of west end the luckless columbine cast back many a lingering look at the fair which seemed to put on a more than usual splendor its tents and booths and party-colored groups all brightening in the sunshine and gleaming among the trees and its gay flags and streamers playing and fluttering in the light summer airs with a heavy sigh she would lean on my arm and proceed i had no hope or consolation to give her but she had linked herself to my fortunes and she was too much of a woman to desert me pensive and silent then we traversed the beautiful fields that lie behind hempstead and wandered on until the fiddle and the hautboy and the shout and the laugh were swallowed up in the deep sound of the big bass drum and even that died away into a distant rumble we passed along the pleasant sequestered walk of nightingale lane for a pair of lovers what scene could be more propitious but such a pair of lovers not a nightingale sang to soothe us the very gypsies who were encamped there during the fair made no offer to tell the fortunes of such an ill-omened couple whose fortunes i suppose they thought too legibly written to need an interpreter and the gypsy children 
crawled into their cabins and peeped out fearfully at us as we went by for a moment i paused and was almost tempted to turn gypsy but the poetical feeling for the present was fully satisfied and i passed on thus we travelled and travelled like a prince and princess in nursery chronicle until we had traversed a part of hampstead heath and arrived in the vicinity of jack straw's castle here wearied and dispirited we seated ourselves on the margin of the hill hard by the very millstone where whittington of yore heard the bow-bells ring out the presage of his future greatness alas no bell rung in invitation to us as we looked disconsolately upon the distant city old london seemed to wrap itself up unsociably in its mantle of brown smoke and to offer no encouragement to such a couple of tatterdemalions for once at least the usual course of the pantomime was reversed harlequin was jilted and the lover had earned off columbine in good earnest but what was i to do with her i had never contemplated such a dilemma and i now felt that even a fortunate lover may be embarrassed by his good fortune i really knew not what was to become of me for i had still the boyish fear of returning home standing in awe of the stern temper of my father and dreading the steady arm of the pedagogue and even if i were to venture home what was i to do with columbine i could not take her in my hand and throw myself on my knees and crave his forgiveness and his blessing according to a dramatic usage the very dogs would have chased such a draggle-tailed beauty from the grounds in the midst of my doleful dumps someone tapped me on the shoulder and looking up i saw a couple of rough sturdy fellows standing behind me not knowing what to expect i jumped on my legs and was preparing again to make battle but i was tripped up and secured in a twinkling come come young master said one of the fellows in a gruff but good-humoured tone don't let's have any of your tantrums one would have thought that you had had swing enough for this bout come it's high time to leave off harlequinating and go home to your father in fact i had a couple of bow street officers hold of me the cruel saccharissa had proclaimed who i was and that a reward had been offered throughout the country for any tidings of me and they had seen a description of me that had been forwarded to the police office in town those harpies therefore for the mere sake of filthy lucre were resolved to deliver me over into the hands of my father and the clutches of my pedagogue it was in vain that i swore i would not leave my faithful and afflicted columbine it was in vain that i tore myself from their grasp and flew to her and vowed to protect her and wiped the tears from her cheek and with them a whole blush that might have vied with the carnation for brilliancy my persecutors were inflexible they even seemed to exult in our distress and to enjoy this theatrical display of dirt and finery and tribulation i was carried off in despair leaving my columbine destitute in the wide world but many a look of agony did i cast back at her as she stood gazing piteously after me from the brink of hempstead hill so forlorn so fine so ragged so bedraggled yet so beautiful thus ended my first peep into the world i returned home rich in good-for-nothing experience and dreading the reward i was to receive for my improvement my reception however was quite different from what i had expected my father had a spice of the devil in him and did not seem to like me the worse for my freak which he termed sowing my wild oats he happened to have several of his sporting friends to dine with him 
the very day of my return. They made me tell of some of my adventures, and laughed heartily at them. One old fellow, with an outrageously red nose, took to me hugely. I heard him whisper to my father that I was a lad of metal, and might make something clever, to which my father replied that I had good points, but it was an ill-broken whelp, and required a great deal of the whip. Perhaps this very conversation raised me a little in his esteem, for I found the red-nosed old gentleman was a veteran fox-hunter of the neighborhood, for whose opinion my father had vast deference. Indeed, I believe he would have pardoned anything in me more readily than poetry, which he called a cursed, sneaking, puling, housekeeping employment, the bane of all true manhood. He swore it was unworthy of a youngster of my expectations, who was one day to have so great an estate, and would he be able to keep horses and hounds and hire poets to write songs for him into the bargain. I had now satisfied for a time my roving propensity. I had exhausted the poetical feeling. I had been heartily buffeted out of my love for theatrical display. I felt humiliated by my exposure, and was willing to hide my head anywhere for a season, so that I might be out of the way of the ridicule of the world, for I found folks not altogether so indulgent abroad as they were at my father's table. I could not stay at home. The house was intolerably doleful now that my mother was no longer there to cherish me. Everything around spoke mournfully of her. The little flower garden in which she delighted was all in disorder and overrun with weeds. I attempted, for a day or two, to arrange it, but my heart grew heavier and heavier as I labored. Every little broken-down flower that I had seen, her rear so tenderly, seemed to plead in mute eloquence to my feelings. There was a favorite honeysuckle which I had seen her often training with assiduity, and had heard her say it should be the pride of her garden. I found a groveling along the ground, tangled and wild, and twining round every worthless weed, and it struck me as an emblem of myself, a mere scatterling, running to waste and useless. I could work no longer in the garden. My father sent me to pay a visit to my uncle, by way of keeping the old gentleman in mind of me. I was received as usual, without any expression of discontent, which we always considered equivalent to a hearty welcome. Whether he had ever heard of my strolling freak or not, I could not discover. He and his man were both so taciturn. I spent a day or two roaming about the dreary mansion and neglected park, and felt at one time, I believe, a touch of poetry, for I was tempted to drown myself in the fish-pond. I rebuked the evil spirit, however, and it left me. I found the same red-headed boy running wild about the park, but I felt in no humor to hunt him at present. On the contrary, I tried to coax him to me, and to make friends with him, but the young savage was untamable. When I returned from my uncle's, I remained at home for some time, for my father was disposed, he said, to make a man of me. He took me out hunting with him, and I became a great favorite of the red-nosed squire, because I rode at everything, never refused the boldest leap, and was always sure to be in at the death. I used often, however, to offend my father at hunting dinners, by taking the wrong side in politics. My father was amazingly ignorant, so ignorant, in fact, as not to know that he knew nothing. He was staunch, however, to church and king, and full of old-fashioned prejudices. Now I had picked up a little knowledge in politics and religion during my rambles with the strollers, and found myself capable of setting him right as to many of his antiquated notions. I felt it my duty to do so, 
you are apt therefore to differ occasionally in the political discussions that sometimes arose at those hunting dinners end of chapter fifteen recording by greg giordano newport ritchie florida